Hello and welcome to another exciting and jam-packed, that's right, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, I'm Danny LaBelle, you are whoever you are, and we have a fantastic show for you today. Today I'm going to talk to one of the great comedians who is currently 102 years old, the oldest person I've ever interviewed, Professor Erwin Corey, who's a fascinating personality, and even since doing the interview I've learned so much about him that I almost wish I could go back and do the interview again. I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody told me that he goes and begs in the Lincoln Tunnel for money and gives it all to an orphanage every week, even at this old, old age. And I do believe it. Anyway, uh, we talk a lot about many different things. It starts out kind of uh, him doing jokes, and then we get into some some real uh, who he is stuff, and it's great. Uh one thing I'll tell you is it took me forever to put this one out because it took me forever to edit this because he couldn't hear very well. And his grandson uh, sat next to him and held the microphone for him. And every time I'd ask a question, even though I was only a few feet away, he'd say, what? And his grandson would re-yell the question into his ear. So i say, uh, how are you? And he'd go, what? How are you? What? And his grandson would go right up to his ear and yell, how are you? And they go, oh, I'm all right, you know, not too bad. Uh, or, or what did he actually say? He goes, I'm miserable. It's funny. I don't know. Anyway, so I cut a lot of that out. I left a little bit in every now and then throughout the interview just to give you a taste of what that was like. There were also times that he was wheezing a lot in between talking and coughing and kind of losing track of the conversation because the man was over a hundred years old when I interviewed him. He's even older now and pretty impressive that he's as sharp as he is, but I didn't want you to hear how he was. I wanted you to hear who he was, if that makes sense to you. So I did put in countless hours to edit this so that you wouldn't be distracted by all these things that could easily take you out of the interview. And I just wanted you to really be able to experience it. It's funny, like there's one point when he refers to Robin Williams as Jack because he was in the movie Jack with him. Little things like that I left in because I I I just thought they were nice little uh, <laughs> nice little brush strokes, if you will, in the in the portrait. Uh, but um, yeah, it's been a it's been a rough week for comedy. We lost one of the greats. We lost Gary Shandling. Uh, I was shocked when I heard it. Seemed very sudden. I'd met him not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, and I was absolutely thrilled to meet him because he was somebody and remains somebody who I have a tremendous respect for and I think he's one of the great uh, artists of, of, uh, of comedy, not just a comedian, but an artist and a master craftsman of, of joke writing and of um, television pioneered... Uh, new ways of doing comedy on TV, and did so brilliantly. When I met him, I invited him to do this show, and he told me, he said, I'm not in talking mode right now, I'm in listening mode, but I would love to listen to your show, Modern Day Philosophers. It sounds like a great idea for a show, and comedians discussing philosophy is something I think I'd get a real kick out of. And I wrote it down for him, and I believe he probably did tune into it. I never followed up with him or anything after that, but... He was a very gracious guy. I, I was even starstruck when I met him, which I can count uh, on one hand the amount of times that's ever happened to me in my life. I'm not a starstruck kind of guy. But for some reason, when I met him, 
it threw me off. I was like, whoa, it's Gary Shandling. Whoa. I love Gary Shandling. So sad. it's sad that he, he went so young, but he, he did contribute such incredible, tremendous work to the art of stand-up comedy and to the world of comedy in general. Anyway, here we go. We're going to go into our <laughs> transition into our sponsor. Our sponsor is somebody who also has contributed a ton to comedy in a very different way because he has uh, put comedy records out there preserving fantastic performances from great comedians like Mark Marin and Doug Stanhope and Maria Bamford. And hey, even me with my album, Some Kind of Comedian, also available on Stand Up Records. Here's an ad for Stand Up Records. Enjoy. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. Go out there and pick up some CDs today. Take it from me today. You gotta go buy some comedy CDs. All right, I'll stop singing and get to the interview. Come on, guys. It's Professor Irwin Corey. Wow. I'm excited for you to hear it. Without further ado, except for the intro song, my talk with Professor Irwin Corey, the world's foremost authority. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Philosophers. Professor Irwin Corey, how are you? What? How are you? Nah, miserable, you know. But I haven't got any pain, thank God, no more. No? At least not there for the moment. Um, I'm... You, you can see I'm resting in bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm honored that you gave me the chance to do the interview. Thank you very much for doing this. What? He's honored to be able to interview you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. First of all, happy birthday. I, I understand you're oh, now... Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're now 100 years old. Yeah, 100 years. What's it like to be 100 years old? What is it like to be 100 years old? Well, to, to be 100 years old is amazing, especially... In a country such as ours, where there the development of all the hostility in the world is based on American policy. America, the United States, has bases, army bases, in 65 countries. But I don't see the other countries have any bases in our, uh, in our country. In fact, during the Civil War, 
General Useless S. Grant, who became a president only because he had the qualifications. He was drunk, and he didn't know what he was doing half the time, which made it possible for him to exert influence on things that he's not aware of or doesn't even know. Useless S. Grant, during the Civil War, ordered all Jews out of Tennessee. And it was just the time that Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. When he heard of this order, he rescinded it. But by the time he rescinded the order, the two Jews already left. <laughs> so, how, how long have you been here for, in this house? Well, um... My son bought the house with his sister in 1974. And you've been here since then? Yeah. Where did you live before that? I lived in Great Neck. And before Great Neck, I lived in Queens, uh, the place called Kennedy Hills Halls. What are the earliest memories that you can recall? So what are some of your earliest memories? Oh, well, I was in the first place. Let's look at it this way. I was born, uh, this was in 1914, on July 29th. And uh, I survived the 100 years. It's really amazing, especially in the country where we have the greatest amount of poverty per capita in this country, it is always amazing. The richest country in the world has the most poor people in a percentage. Professor, what do you think is the secret to living a long life? The secret to living a long life is to lie about your age. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps you going? What keeps me going? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I have been uh, lucky to join the union. And I get a pension from Actors' Equity, mm -hmm. a pension from Screen <laughs> Actors Guild, <laughs> and a pension from uh, AFTRA, plus... The money that I get from Social Security. What what inspires you to to keep going every day? What when you when you get to be an old age? What what do you get excited to wake up for in the morning? I don't want you say old age. I'm not old age. It's just that I've gone a hundred years. And an amazing philosophy that keeps me going is something that I don't understand, and neither can the scientists realize what's happening. Someone asked me a question. Can you plane Einstein's theory of relativity? I said, yes. Now, that was a quick answer. Because he wanted to know if I could explain it. 
Einstein proved conclusively that heating causes expansion and cooling causes contraction. That's why in the summer, the days are longer because it's hotter. And in the winter, it's colder and they're shorter. And I said to this guy sitting in the front row, I said to him, sir, when you get hot, doesn't it get bigger? And imagine he smiled and laughed. He just doesn't realize that. I told him that the second time he was masturbating is because he wanted to. The first time was an accident. But because we are human and endowed with a capacity to recall the activity that brought about that erotic joy, he did it again! <laughs> now, that's one thing that we all have to understand. It's not a crime. Only in America, sex is an erotic joy and a criminal act. Does that bother you? Nothing bothers me. That's the reason I maintain my, my life today. I maintain because there's a secret of not knowing how old a person is. There was one guy in India who is supposedly told to live to be 250 years. And I know the people there say that he's a liar because he happens to be 500 years old. <laughs> So what was the philosophy? You said you have a philosophy about living, but I think we got sidetracked. What is, what is this philosophy about living? My philosophy is, I say that life, life uh, is memories. Life is memories. And I say the appositional sentence with the predicate nominative is, indicating the intransitive verb, Leads us, to, leads us to believe that life and memory are the same. So I say, life is memories. So if you don't do it when you're 13, when you're 50, you got nothing to remember. Can you tell me about your early days in comedy? What was it like back then to be a comedian? Well, I've known a lot of comedians. In fact, Jack, who just recently passed away, was the one that recommended me for a part in a movie that he was in because they taped or they used uh, three hours in, uh, in the uh, movie they took and they had to cut it down because it was too long. So they cut my part out the only thing I said was during the filming, I had a line, take it, it's your birthday, Jack. Make a wish. Now, you know, he's supposed to look like he's 40 years old when he's only 10. Mm -hmm. So I told him, take a wish, Jack. And remember, you're as young as you feel, not as old as you look. And they kept that ad lib in the movie. Yeah. 
Well, that's a good point. How young do you feel at 100 years old? Well, I feel like I just felt like like I was 99. <laughs> I feel like I was 98. Are you a different person now than you were when you were 90? Am I a different person? Well, every seven years, the skin on your body is changing. Did you know that? I did. Did I tell you that in the Civil War, there were 300,000 deserters? In World War II, there were 50,000 American deserters. England had 100,000 deserters. Mm -hmm. I have a book called The Deserters explaining how it happened. Do you know how you can tell or contact or discover the terrorists? Do you know how you can discover? Is it the uniforms? How you can find a, a, a terrorist? The uniforms. Is it the uniforms? That's right. <laughs> Did you know Lord Buckley? Yes, yes, he was a friend of mine. In fact, I lent him $500 to buy a coat, I, and I didn't see him again after that. I met him in Florida in 1955. Tell, tell me about him. What was he like? What was he like? Yeah. Well, he was a very gentle man. He was sweet and very, very considerate and very, very light on his feet. This man, what I would call, brought into the entertainment field a special kind of beauty. In fact, I think it was him who said the only way you can solve the marijuana problem is to have a joint session with Congress. <laughs> but did Lord Buckley... Huh? <laughs> Lord Buckley, I don't know if Lord was his real name or uh, well, I never even knew his first name. Mm. Well, I'll tell you something. One of the greatest comedians of our time, of the 20th century, was Lenny Bruce. Another one that was uh, uh, revealing the black comedian, what's his Richard, name? Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was brilliant. I have every one of his records. Now, Lenny Bruce talked about you. He, he said that you were a great influence of his. Well, Lenny Bruce says that I was the, one of the greatest comedians of all, of all time. I have a book that I called The Unpublished Work of Lenny Bruce, which was done by his daughter, Kitty. Can you tell me about Lenny? Can you tell me about your friendship with him? Well, Lenny Bruce was is also a gentle person. According to uh, Kenneth Tynan, one of the great critics of the 20th century, said that uh, uh, Lenny Bruce, like the pearl in the oyster, is a disease of the oyster. <laughs> Therefore, Lenny Bruce is the disease of America. He is a brilliant as a pearl mm -hmm. is beautiful. Lenny Bruce was, uh, he recommended me for a job in uh, uh, London that I recommended him for. <laughs> when, did, when did you first meet him? I met the Lenny in 1955 
in San Francisco. I was working at the Hungry Eye, and he was working at Ann's 440. He sometimes came out as the MC, completely nude, except for a tie and shoes. <laughs> he would be completely nude. The Hungry Eye is now a legendary, famous venue, and I know so many Woody Allen and yourself and Shelley Berman and all, all the old-time comics played there. Can you tell me about it? Well, it was a room in the cellar, and it had a brick wall. I remember once I said to the audience, I lined up the musicians against the wall and said to the audience, Recognize anybody here? <laughs> was it all the, j the jazz musicians back then? It was Vince Giraldi. That was uh, the uh, group at the Hungry Eye for some time. In fact, in 1943, I was working in Boston at the Satire Room at the Friendsgate Hotel on Kennedy Square, is it? some park, the name of an Irishman. Well, anyway, from the hungry eye, so many uh, people that became popular worked the hungry eye when they were unknown, like Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, uh, Lenny Bruce. They had... Uh, uh, a tremendous record of bringing up fine talent. And you mentioned there were musicians there. Were they the jazz musicians that were playing there at the time? Yes. Yes, they were all jazz musicians. The limelight came from there. The uh, Kingston Trio developed at the Hungry Eye. That's where it started. That's where it got its build, built. Were you friends with the jazz musicians? Oh, yes. I, uh, the musicians were. I worked with Miles Davis. I worked with the bass player. What was his name? I just forget his name. In fact, I forget things that I'm going to say in the middle of a word. I forget what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, does it frustrate you when that happens? No. You just let it go. If you get frustrated, you use up energy that you need in order to sustain your life. So that's one of the tricks, I guess, living a long time, not to let yourself get upset. I agree with that. Yeah, that's, that sounds pretty well on target. What do you think of the state of the world today? It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse before it gets worse. And the worse it gets, this country... We have 200,000 millionaires and 40,000 people below the poverty level. What do you think could change it, if anything? Well, it's easy to change it. In fact, I can make it so. Randy Credico, who was running for governor on four different tickets, he was the one that said, if you tax the New York Stock Exchange, just one half of one percent, no one would have to pay taxes in the state or the city of New York. A half of one percent. Mm -hmm. Democracy is a euphemism for capitalism. And Russia 
Before Stalin died, they had no insurance companies. They had no rent to pay. Now that they got democracy, they got unemployment. Uh, they they can buy and sell houses. They didn't do that. And they had insurance companies. We have an insurance company here called AARP, which is the biggest crook in the goddamn country. Why? What they get them? in over four hundred billion dollars a year in uh, the plans that they have. $156 a month, that's $1,800 a year before they take $1 in so far as benefits are concerned. The uh, Social Security takes 4% where it's 80% of what the thing costs. And AARP charges more than the uh, Social Security does. Tell me, I know that you helped George Carlin get his start. I was working at the Playboy Club, and George Carlin came over to me and asked if I could do a turn in his place because... He wants to try out the material that he might use on the Ed Sullivan show. So I said, yes, I introduced him. And I said, you people are guinea pigs. A friend of mine, George, who was very talented, is going to try some material out on you. And your reaction will help him choose what he'll say on the Ed Sullivan show. Now, when did you meet George? We did a movie together called Car Wash. Sure. With Richard Pryor. And that was in 1970-something, 76. Is that where you met him, on the set of the movie? It was what? You meet him on the set of the movie. I met him at the, well, before that. I was so shocked when he died, because he never let anyone know that he wasn't feeling well. Because I went to see the show in Las Vegas. It was a very, very successful and he also uh, uh, was a social satirist. There's a woman on television called Ellen DeGrizio or something. DeGeneres, yeah. Yeah, she's, a, she's a, uh, uh, one of the minorities insofar as the sex is concerned. She's a lesbian, which is a quality that every man is, you can't consider them the men lesbians because they like women just as much as the women like women. Right. Why do you bring up Ellen then? She's a, she's a, she's a stupid, a stupid and uh, clumsy, she has no grace that most women have. She has none of it. She's so dumb. She says she never has anything controversial on her show. Well, what kind of a job is that? You're going to talk about the toilet? <laughs> what do you talk about? Uh, people that make observations of the social status in our country 
and not to deny that you have anything controversial. All you talk about is Sunday school and the church and all that crap. <laughs> he ducks me. A person like that is very difficult to to appreciate because she's so shallow and clumsy. Mm-hmm. She's not a graceful person. I don't like her. In fact, I hate her. <laughs> hate is a wonderful thing. Why? Hate and love are on the same bond. But I say hate is necessary because without hate, revenge would mean nothing. Why does it have to mean something? Why do you have to have revenge? Why do you have to have revenge? Well, you have to have revenge. And you've got to keep revenge in your heart, especially the Hebrews. They should keep their hate for, forever until the statue of limitation runs out on the fact that the Hebrews killed Christ. Then I want the statue of limitations done until we can kill a hundred Germans for every Hebrew that was put in the gas chambers. That's six and a half million. So let us do that and let the statue of limitations run out. But for 2,000 years, the Hebrews were a tortured people because they supposedly killed one person. They killed one person. But Hitler was responsible for the killing of 50 million people. 400 million, 40 million Russians were killed. 40,000 Ukrainians went with Hitler when he attacked Russia. The Ukrainians are the worst anti-Semites in the world. Can you make any sense of anti-Semitism? Well, it's really not anti-Semitism because the Lebanese are Semites, the Jordanians are Semites, the Palestinian Arabs are Semites, the Egyptian, Iraq, all these countries are Semitic country, are Semitic people. So it isn't that they hate these people, it's they hate the Jews. It's anti-Jewish, why do you think, not anti-Semitic. Why do you think as Jews that we've been persecuted for so long by so many different groups? Why do you think we've been persecuted for so long? Well, you have to have somebody that you must be the goat, must be the one that is the cause of all this stuff. Why the Jews? They blame it on the, on the Hebrews. Why? The line is that the Jews did have money once. The people that are Jews that have money, there's Morgan, Mellon, Rockefeller, Gates, uh, Queen Elizabeth. All these people have money. And they're, these Jews really, really rake it in, don't they? So you think it's jealousy that drives hate? Do you think it's jealousy that drives hate? It's not that it's jealousy. It's they need to have somebody to blame for the ills that society has to be. For instance, I always said, 
in a society where sex is a commodity and a politician can become a TV personality. It's not easy to conform if you have any morality. I know you were raised in an orphanage. Yes. Were you... For the first 13 years of my life, uh, for two years or three years or four years, I was at a place called the Infant Home, which is on Kingsbridge Road in the Bronx. And from there, I went to the BHOA, the Brooklyn Hebrew Open Asylum. Asylum, I always thought, was a, was an institution pretty, pretty uh, insane. Call it an asylum. Yeah, but I guess it has a different meaning there. Well, I was there with my two brothers and three sisters. When my sisters were reached the age of 16, if they didn't go to college, they had to leave the orphanage. So my mother took them out. But I was taken out uh, August 27th, 1927. Can you remember anything from your time at the orphanage? Can you remember anything from your time at the orphanage? Yes. I used to be in the plays. And one of my part was I was the king's gesture. I remember one of the poems I had to recite was, Here's to the old schoolhouse that stood upon the hill. Alas, the hill has vanished, but the schoolhouse stands there still. <laughs> I had one poem was, the husband oozed into the door. The clock was striking two. The doctor met him in the hall and said, I've news for you. Quite a coincidence, dear sir. Here you are at two o'clock, the father of two boys. The father gasped. The father groaned and raised his eyes to heaven. Two boys at two o'clock. Thank God. I didn't come home at 11. <laughs> I must have been about seven years old when I had to recite that poem. Wow, and you've but retained it But to remember it, it yeah. after uh, 80 years, amazing. It is amazing. Most of the kids had either separate parents, I mean, the parents were divorced, or one, or they, they had... Uh, children were without the uh, benefit of marriage. You were there because your family was poor, right? What? Why were you put in the orphanage? Well, my mother uh, thought that she had tuberculosis, and she was a dressmaker, and uh, she just couldn't uh, stand the work anymore. So she went to her cousin's place in Norwich, Connecticut, and there she was for a couple of years, and she recovered. And then they, she took us out. Now, the orphanage was a Jewish orphanage. Yes. We used to have services every Saturday. And Mr. ALJ, Aaron L. Jacoby, would be the minister. And he would say, all you who've lost the lost of loved ones, at this moment, remember the sweetness and the courtesy that has passed away with them. Only the body has died and has been laden to dust. The spirit lives and will live on forever 
in the land of undisturbed peace and perfect happiness. Why didn't God put us in that place first instead of this moment where we had to suffer? He is called the intelligent design. Intelligent design, volcanoes, floods, fires, earthquakes. This is intelligent design creating poverty and disease. Why do they call him Jesus of Nazareth? Because there was a Jesus in Hebron. There was a Jesus in Bethlehem. There was a Jesus in Jerusalem. So it was just for the phone Jesus book. was a common name <laughs> in those days. Sure. Do you believe in God? Oh, I don't know. I don't really believe in things. The only thing I believe in is the fact that in this world, on this planet, the miracle that was a miracle was life. When I say life, the trees, the bushes, the fish, and the, the fowl in the air, the animals, human beings, this is a miracle. Walking on the water was a trick. Right. Do you think, what about the afterlife? Do you believe there's an afterlife? Do you give it much thought? Well, there is no proof. There is nobody that came back to tell us. Unless our imagination works, we feel that we hear the spirit of them. Spirit, my ass, there's no such thing as spirit. You live because oxygen is taken in. It's, uh, the, the, the human body is similar to the uh, plan of anarchy. There's the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, the spleen, there are all the organs in the body. They don't compete, but all the organs support each other. When one thing goes wrong, the whole thing collapses. But under anarchy, nothing can go wrong because the life is an amazing phenomenon. It's amazing. Language is amazing. What do you love the most about life? The thing that makes life worthwhile is your uh, family. But you know, amongst the Arawak Indians, marriage laws were non-existent. I always say that marriage is like a three-ring circus. There's the engagement ring, there's the wedding ring, and then there's the suffering. Do you really believe that? You were married for 70 years. Do you really believe that? You were married for over 70 years. Yes, I got married in uh, 1940. And Fran passed away 1911. 2011. 2011. Which was uh, 71 years. Wow. You must have liked her to stick around for that long with her. She was a wonderful person. Well, I was on the road half the time. I would be in Chicago for 16 weeks. 
And I went to the uh, Radisson Hotel in Minneapolis. I went to the Chase Hotel in St. Louis. I went to the uh, nightclub in Baltimore with Chico Hamilton, Chico uh, Marx. I worked with with with, uh, with them all with uh, what's his name, Ricky Hamilton, just died recently. I was working in London. And in New York, in the uh, thing came Miles Davis. So it seems as though he was attracting attention of the audience. And I'm the star of this show. And he comes and he's wearing sunglasses. And I went over to him. I says, Miles, what makes you so happy? Then I took his glasses off and put them on. I says, oh, everybody's black. <laughs> Tell me about, I know that, do you still smoke pot to this day? I know that you've always been a great advocate of smoking pot. Marijuana? It's amazing. The United States is against drugs. But they allow you to smoke cigarettes, which is a drug that kills 800,000 people a year. Drinking alcohol, that is a, a, a drug. They allow that. But marijuana doesn't kill anybody. It just makes you happy, makes you not care for things. And some people, it has different reaction. Do you still smoke today? Well, I have a, a grandson who um, gets me the, the liquid form of marijuana, so it doesn't hurt the lungs at all. You met your wife in a communist camp, is that right? Summer camp? Yes, I was up at a place called Camp Unity. It was in Wigdale, New York, in the Berkshires on Lake Ellis. And uh, and I know that over the years you were, you were a great supporter of the Communist Party. What was it about their philosophy that appealed to you? Well, I'll tell you something. The Communist Party refused me uh, membership because in the review, which was rehearsed up until my part, they said, this guy was about socialism. He was no daughter, this Mark says. And then they stopped the rehearsal. So when we put the show on, it came to my line. I says, and Mark said, and they said to me, they brought me up on charge by saying, Marx never said, Fizu, Fizu. <laughs> they were <laughs> terrible runners of the camp. So did that, did that protect you with, with McCarthyism, the fact that you'd been turned down? No, the, I was always thinking, if the House on american Activities called me, they would say, do you swear to tell the truth? the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And my reply to that was, Sir, do you mind repeating the question? <laughs> the House and American Activities Committee was illegal. It violates 
this secret ballot. They cannot ask you how you voted unless you want to tell them it. But they don't know how you vote because you're secretly involved in a booth where only you are there and you mark what you want and make your vote. So the thing is this, the House and American Activities Committee, the first thing the lawyer would say is, how long were you a member of the Democratic Party? Uh-huh. But you're not a member of the Democratic Party. You're a member of the Republican Party. The thing is this, the Republicans and Democrats are both ends of the same string. There's no difference between these two parties. I remember Adlai Stevenson, during his campaign, said to the Republicans, when you stop telling lies about us, we'll stop telling the truth about you. <laughs> what, what was it about communism that specifically appealed to you? Well, I'll tell you something. There were two systems. One system, somebody makes 500 yachts and only sells 250. Whereas another system where a million babies are born, you only make a million pair of booties. You only make what you need, not for profit. So it was about wastefulness. It wasn't that as wasteful because they have to make profit in order to exist. But under socialism, they say from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. I think that's really very good. Tell me out of all the routines that you did in your career, which ones do you still remember with the fondest memory? My double talk in, uh, in politics. Was there anything in your career that you didn't get to do that you would have liked to have done? Well, I don't know. I never thought of a career. It's like people don't know what life is. You don't know how your sentence is going to end when you start it. It shows that the mind, the, con the concept is there in the beginning. However, you're not aware of it until it's done. Then you can see how much you say in relation to what you're thinking. But it's very difficult to know how anything is going to end. That's what makes it so interesting. If we knew what was going to happen, there'd be no fun in, in uh, displaying your knowledge or your, your, your interests. So you have no regrets, in other words. Oh, there are things that uh, make me feel bad. My daughter was murdered by her husband. And her husband, uh, we've got to look at it this way, that greed is a motive for murder. He stole a home that I gave to my daughter as a wedding present. He told my grandson, when he took him to Europe, he says, there are 17 years left on the lease. 
When that happens, you can do what you want. In the meantime, the murderer sold the house and didn't tell Corey about it. He also sold the house that my sister, that my daughter and grandson owned. He sold it. My daughter had a copy, had uh, uh, money in the stock market. He stole that too. The man stole almost two million dollars from my daughter. And greed is a motive for murder. A dirty son of a bitch. Professor, somebody else who would go through a situation as horrible as the one you went through, how would you advise them to, to deal with it? You can't. The pain is there. The pain will be there only when justice takes place and puts Bill in the jailhouse where he belongs. All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this opportunity. I always bring up a philosopher to the guest. I'm going to bring up a philosopher very briefly and tell you some quotes. Uh, to round off the interview and, and see what you think of them. Everybody is a philosopher. Everybody uh, has a situation in their own life. Is that the bishop that just walked away? Yeah. That's my uh, daughter-in-law. Right. She's a wonderful woman. Very, very appealing. Bruce... His voice mesmerized you alone. The man was a gentle, one of the great philosophers of the century. Yes. The philosopher we've chosen for you is someone we've all heard of, Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi? Yeah. From India. You know, what you have in common with him is that you're known as the authority and he is a philosopher of political influence. Well, my God, what I don't know, I make up. <laughs> what did you think about Mahatma Gandhi? Stupid man. Wanted the Jews to walk in nonviolence and walk into their death. If I was in charge of the, the trials in Nuremberg, I would have the defendants come in naked. Get the, all the dignity away from them. Make them look like animals in a cage, just nude, down to the shoes. The only thing they can wear is a tie. It sounds like what Lenny Bruce used to do when he went on stage. The Pope uh, was Papal Nuncio in... Berlin, in 1928, he dissolved the Catholic Party so that Hitler got another 28 million votes from the Catholics. The reason they didn't put the Germans in jail like the Japanese is because there were 60 million Germs, Germans in America at the time. 60 million Germans. You can't put 60 million Germans in jail. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Gandhi now. His full name was Mahatmas Karamanchand Gandhi, and he lived 
from October 2nd, 1869 to January 30th, 1948. He was the preeminent leader of Indian independence movement in British-ruled India. He employed nonviolent civil obedience, which is what you brought up, and Gandhi led India to independence and inspired movements for civil rights and self-determination across the world. So I'm going to read you some of his quotes, and I want to see what you think of them. What's the quote? The first quote is, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, I'd like to see the world become like an anarchy. Just as I said before, the body is like anarchy. It's got lungs, a heart, the liver, the spleen. It has all these organs that support each other rather than have become in competition with them. How is that anarchy? I thought anarchy was was not controlled. Well, anarchy is without a, a conscious government. Anarchy is so easy. There'd be no taxes. There'd be no politicians. In the United States, we have 48 different nations in a country where abortion is based on the area that you're in. If you're in Kansas, you can get an abortion. If you're in St. Louis, you're not allowed to have abortion. But if you're in the same country, you're in the same state, the stupidity of being controlling human reaction is absolutely uh, inane. Pretty soon, you know, they charge you for everything. Pretty soon they'll charge you for the air. Each one walks around with a helmet <laughs> and a mask on his body. And every time he wants to breathe, he has to put a shilling in the <laughs> slot in order to get air, which is free. Yeah. Water is free. We pay $700 a year for the use of water on this state. When I, when my children bought this house in 1984, if I live another, I used to have, the house was only $3,000 taxes, which is illegal. Mm -hmm. But it was $3,000 a year. Now it's 18000 So if I live another 10 years, it would cost me $180,000 to live in a house that, I'm, that I sleep in. Yeah, that doesn't make much sense. I agree with you. No, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, here's another quote. In the poem, taxes, taxes in, uh, uh, on your house is illegal because the Constitution says... Only Congress can declare war and levy taxes. Only Congress. Randy Credico, a guy running for governor, said, if you tax the uh, New York Stock Exchange one half of one percent, 
we would not have to pay taxes, don't have to pay state taxes or city taxes. Okay, the next one is that you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. Well, I don't know why we should be interested in the ocean being vilified or <laughs> disturbed. The ocean can take care of itself. Yeah. And if you drop shit in it, nobody know where it is. Because the ocean at certain parts is six miles deep. Six miles deep, my God. <laughs> my astrologist looked at my palm and said that I was dead a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about humanity? Do you have faith in humanity? Well, it's very difficult to prepare a thing for life. Life takes care of itself. And uh, to uh, analyze the reason for people saying what they say, it's really unimportant. The only important thing in life is do unto others and do them fast. I always say a friend in need is a pest. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't play. We change tests. We use rabbis instead of bishops as Jewish chests. <laughs> okay here's the next one satisfaction lies in the effort not the attainment full effort is full victory in other words it's saying that work is its own reward it's not what you get from the work it's the effort that you put in this woman has an argument with her husband and she says to her husband, you give me a pain neck. I bore your children. He says, I know, and you bore me too. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. I was the highest paid actor in a play. Ah, ah. Called Sly Fox. I was the highest paid actor by word. I only had about eight words in the whole play. But what was rewarding about all your years in comedy? I wasn't rewarded at all. In fact, Jay Leno made $400,000 more in two weeks than I made in 71 years. He was getting $520,000 a week. Is that the only way to measure the success is through money? Is that the only way you look That's at it? That's the only way success is made in a capitalist country. How much money you've made. What about your personal achievements as an artist? What about your personal achievements as an artist? Well, there is no such thing. One doesn't work to achieve something. Understand? It only comes naturally. It comes like the waves in the sea. There's nobody protecting it. 
It just goes back and forth, back and forth. Water actually is changed up and down because of the the moon has the gravity on the water, so it sucks it up and then it releases it. And that's how it's the water. People don't think of these things. These things just happen. Lauren Bacall, because she was a model and she was on the cover book of Vanity Fair, caught the eye of Howard Hughes. She told her husband, Humphrey Bogart, the reason she had her children brought up as Episcopalians instead of Jews is because they wouldn't have to hurdle. There was another hurdle that they would have to worry about because anti-Semitism is still here. Just recently, they found a swastika on a synagogue in Borough Park. This country, Roosevelt, when the five, 900 Jews came to Havana, there was no reservations made there. Mm-hmm. So they asked for clemency with the State Department, and Roosevelt said, send them kikes back. So I got a book here, Roosevelt and the Jews. Are you, are you happy with how you spent your life? Am I happy? Yeah. What is happiness? Happiness is something that is in the future. If you had a good time at a certain uh, time, while you're having it, you don't realize that it's a good thing and that it makes you happy. You only look at it, at it in the future to remember what happened in the past. And that's what it is. Life is memories. So? It. It's memories. Are you happy with your memories? Are, well... Do you take joy in your memories or pride in your memories? Well, there are a lot of things that I did that was wrong. For instance, when I was kicked out of pins and needles because I said I was a communist, I could have gone to the Union and got my job back. I went to London. I was in a play called Mrs. McThing. What I should have asked was a leave of absence. So when I was through with the other shows that I had, I would come back to a job. I didn't realize that I could do that. And I wasn't uh, in the hands of an agent that could uh, steer me in this particular case. Okay, well, we have one one last quote. Let's do one more quote. Okay. Uh, from Gandhi. He says, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. An eye for an eye only ends up with the whole world blind. With the whole world crying? Blind. An eye for an eye. If you take out an eye and the next guy takes out an eye... Well, I don't believe in an eye for an eye for tooth for tooth. I believe for every Hebrew that was killed, I want a hundred Germans killed. So you're certainly not a nonviolent protester. I think we've established. That. And when we bring, when we find these soldiers, 
we bring him into court naked, naked. The victims that killed, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the perpetrators that were responsible for six and a half million Hebrews being killed only because they were Jews. Yeah. And the Jews were killed by design. That is, they didn't bring the gypsies in to be killed. They didn't bring the Italians in to be killed. They brought the Jews from Greece, from Spain, from Italy, from from Norway, from France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from Poland, from all the countries, they brought the Jew in to be killed. Whereas the gypsy and the communists were killed in the crossfire. They were part of the war. They were not like the final question for the Hebrews. The Hebrews were not in a war, but the war made it possible to bring the Holocaust to a head. Professor, I want to leave off by asking you some advice for me. If you could give me any advice about anything in the world, what would you tell me? It's very difficult for anybody to give advice. My advice sometimes is wrong. I had a friend called Paul Villard who had a girlfriend, Lisa Kirk, and she was singing at the Rubon Bleu, and Paul Villard said, see what you can do for my girlfriend. So therefore, she went up and she sang, and he says, I said, you really want me to tell her what to do? He says, yeah, help her out. My advice was, get out of show business. That girl that I said, get out of show business, became the headliner at the Persian Room at the Plaza Hotel. So you see, my advice would have been wrong by telling her to get out. Okay, Danny boy. That's a good song, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. The pipes, the pipes are calling. There's a song that I like that's very much, oh, my captain, dear captain, our ship has done. Our ship has weathered every rack and sauce. The prize we sought is won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting. While follow I and steady kneel, the vessel grim and daring. But oh heart, 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 over the bleeding drops of bread, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. Wow, what a powerful poem. My soul and dead. My captain, captain. It was a song written by Walt Whitman uh, talking about the assassination of Lincoln. Fallen, cold, and dead. Professor, last thing. What is the best thing about waking up in the morning? When you wake up in the morning every day, what do you look forward to the most? 
cornflakes milk. <laughs> well, that's a great answer. Thanks so much. Thank you for doing the show. Okay, Danny boy. Anytime you want information, just come here. I mean, have it. And if I don't have it, I make it up. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Shalom, everybody. have it ladies and gentlemen another fantastic episode of modern day philosophers is what i do show myself and uh thank you again to professor erwin Corey and Corey Corey, his grandson for helping uh so much with this interview and for doing the interview and thank you to stand up records for sponsoring the interview and thank you to all of you for tuning in to the interview please share this show with your friends get the word out there more uh, post it on your Facebook or Twitter or whatever you use to post things to people, or or if people are uh, if you work it somewhere and some someone you know listens to podcasts, say hey you ought to check out Modern Day Philosophers. I mean, it's a good show, and if you get the time, it it truly means a lot to me, on many levels. One because it helps the show's visibility, but two because I read them. There's not that many of them. Let's face it, uh, but I read them and I and I really uh, get energized by nice comments on iTunes. So if you can leave a five-star rating and a nice comment on the show's iTunes page under rate and review, that would be tremendous, and I'd very much appreciate it. Um, the other show I do is called The Mostly Bull Market. It's a jokey show. This one is uh, tends to go more interviewee or sometimes deeper. Uh, if you want to hear one that's more playful and fun, Go check out the Mostly Bull Market. It's on the cbsplay.it podcast network, but you could just go on iTunes and type in the Mostly Bull Market, and you'll find me talking with comedians about the financial news, and we don't know what we're talking about, and it's very funny. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. The website, as always, is moderndayphilosophers.net, and if you can't uh, make a donation, don't worry about it, but if you can, boy, oh boy, that helps. There's a donate button on the website. And you can always write me at thecomical at yahoo.com and say hello. If you've written me before, write me again. And if you've never written me, maybe it's time. All right, everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time with another episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye.